Well, it's good to see you here today. Am I on? You can hear me, Gary? Can you hear me? My name is Tom. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, I'd love to do that during our coffee time afterwards. Let me ask you this. That moment when you realized your family wasn't perfect. Do you, do you remember that? So, you know, a lot of us grew up in families, and, and of course, you know, when you're little, you kind of just assume that everything that's going on around you is normal, even good, and, and life is just what it is. You don't really question it. But there was that moment when it dawned on you, this family is not perfect. In fact, it may have dawned on you with startling clarity. There's something wrong here. This isn't normal. Now, that could represent something super painful in your experience. It could represent something, you know, we would look at it now and say it's fairly benign. But there was a moment when you realized, oh, my goodness, my family's not perfect. Now, you don't need to shout it out, but can you, can you think back? Can you remember what that was? Yeah, I hesitated to tell stories right now because I realized my parents do come and visit. And, uh, you know. But hey, let me tell you anyway, just don't, don't, you know, don't, don't be mean to my mom and dad when they come visit. So I remember that moment when my dad, who's this very gentle, he's an animal lover, dog lover. He's just the guy, you know, never, never seems upset. I remember the moment when we were trying to get some animal back in and this dog was barking and barking and barking. And, and finally my dad, very uncharacteristic, swore and tried to kick the dog. I was blown away. My dad never tries to kick dogs or swear. <laughs> I was raised in a pretty good home. And, and, but it was that moment where I was like, whoa, dad. I remember the time um, I was woken up by the fact that my sister was having some enormous fight with mom and dad. And I was little and I realized, oh, life isn't perfect in my family. Uh, I, probably the biggest thing for me was probably when I was, I don't know, 10 or 11, my mom sat me down and she was, very tearful and really, really upset. And she, she was meeting with each one of us kids. There was four of us. And she was sharing something deep from her past, a deep wound, something she was grieving that she wanted to share with us as, as kids, as, as God was working in her life. And I, in that moment, it's probably the most startling moment for me where I realized, like, I'm not from a perfect family. In fact, nobody is. Have you, have you ever looked around at your family and thought, what did I do to deserve them? Or, or, or maybe thought of, like, who could we vote off the island? Who could we eliminate? How many of you, um, maybe, maybe those of you who, who, who have been parents or are parents, you're, you're thinking, like, I want to be a better parent. I, I don't want to do to my kids what my parents did to me. But then you find out when you're in the midst of it all, the words coming in your mouth are, guess what? Mom's words. Or dads, I'm doing to my kids exactly what I didn't want to do. Or, or maybe you wanted to experience a better marriage than what you saw modeled in your home. Or maybe didn't see modeled in your home because there wasn't a marriage around. I don't know. But you wanted to experience that. But then somehow in the midst of it all, oh, it's a struggle. There's patterns or cycles or things that keep coming up and keep rearing their ugly heads. Or maybe you've heard all this. Maybe even this morning you heard for the first time. The church is the family of God. Dave led us in some songs that would suggest that. And you look around this group and you think, really? Do I want to be related to these people? Well, today we're, we're starting a new message series. 
and we're going to pull out the family. And we're going to look at the family from a variety of angles. We're going to try to unpack it a bit and understand it, try to get God's perspective on, on our family, whether that be your, 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 your biological family or your adoptive family or your spiritual family. And why would we do that? Because family matters. It really, really matters. Here's my opening point. When God looked at the mess of our world, he decided to make the world right again by working through family, through one particular family. We discover God's family idea early in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, right in the 12th chapter, right, really at the beginning. Now, the first 11 chapters of Genesis can be very simply summarized as this. God's great plan for his good creation keeps getting frustrated by human beings. You could summarize Genesis 1 to 11 that way. When, you know, things, when they really start going down the tank, God attempts this drastic restart by flooding the planet. But it does not work. Not at all. Human insistence on resistance is persistent. Try that one out. Humans' insistence on resistance is persistent. And, and by Genesis 11, people are just doing everything they can to avoid God's way to live. Even building the infamous Tower of Babel so they can kind of avoid what God wants. And God puts a stop to that. People keep scattering as God intended. But everything's still a mess. Everybody's still a mess. Now we've got piles of people speaking you know, in multiple family groups, speaking diverse languages. And every one of these families are out of sync with God's good purposes. What's God going to do? Genesis 1 to 11 kind of ends with this question. You know, what's a God to do with a world like that? Well, what's a God to do? Well, right in Genesis 12, we find out. God restarts his plan for creation by using an entirely different tactic. God picks one family out of all the other families that are available so that through this one family, all these other scattered families and in turn all of creation would eventually be made right again. This is not a short-term project. God is in this for the long game. L- listen to this from Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord said to Abram. Now, Abram later on gets his name changed to Abraham. That's another part of the story. You may hear me use both because I can't keep them straight. But neither can you, so we're all okay. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your native country your relatives, your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Got that? God calls this one guy, Abram. Out of all these other families, he calls him to uproot from his own family, leave his own land, and just go with all these promises of what God will do through him. God's end goal is to bless all the families on the earth. That's his end goal. To, to bless means to, to bring healing and life and forgiveness and wholeness and health. For God's purpose is to be fully flowing in all the families of the earth so that they're in right relationship with God, their creator. They're in right relationship with other peoples, other family groups, other, other language speakers. They're, they're in right relationship with God's creation. That's what it means to bless. That's God's end goal. And his clever strategy 
is to do it through this one man, through this one family. Now, if you can cement that into your mind, God's end goal and God's strategy to use this family to do it, it'll actually help you read the whole rest of the Bible, sort of Genesis 12 on. Because all the rest of the books of the Bible, whatever they are, poetry or, or narrative or prophecy or gospel, whatever, they all fit in to this story arc. God's strategy to bring about the accomplishment of his goal. But you have to wonder, what kind of family would God need to accomplish this amazingly grand vision? I mean, to bring health and wholeness and goodness, to bring blessing to everyone through this family. God must have chosen them very, very carefully, don't you think? He knows people's hearts. He must have been super selective. You're just looking and scanning, handpicking that special family that would really shine. Can you see God scouring high and low to make his choice? He's selecting only the best of the best. He's looking for the most upstanding the super holy, the, the, the most got it all together peeps you could find. Kind of a mix between Ned Flanders, Mother Teresa, maybe Aunt May with kids. You know, that kind of family. Is that the family you're expecting to get? Because that is not the family you get. That's not the family that shows up in the story. The family God chose was a complete mess. Abram was the son of a moon-worshipping pagan who ends up marrying his half-sister. Nobody thinks that weird? It's a great start, don't you think? <laughs> you know, um, Dad, why is Mom in the family pictures with you when you were little? That would be awkward to explain. You were worried about having the sex talk with your kids. Imagine having that one. Well, son, didn't I mention that we knew, we knew each other a long time ago when we were young? And Sarah, Sarai, this half-sister of Abram, who's now his wife, she was frighteningly beautiful. Do you know what frighteningly beautiful means? It means she was so beautiful, she frightened Abram. So whenever they would travel to a new place, Abram would make Sarai pretend that she was actually a sister, which she sort of was, but that wasn't really the point. And he would do that because he was afraid that someone would kill him to get her. That would make holidays a real downer, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> have one queen bed please thought you said she was your sister (laughs) two queen beds please you know and we're dealing with a real champ here abram it means he would rather risk her virtue than his neck i mean are you sure god about this this guy and his kids where do we even start we could talk about Abe's kid, Isaac, his terrible marriage. He also managed to catch a, a frighteningly beautiful wife, but at least this time she was only his cousin. We could discuss their textbook parenting where each parent picks their favorite kid and then dotes on them to the exclusion of the other. We all know how that goes, right? In this family, it results in one kid deceiving another, then his dad, all with mom's conniving help, and creating a sibling rivalry that was murderously dangerous. But then the kid goes off and gets his just desserts from his even more deceptively gifted uncle. Story's a real treat. But I will skip over it, mostly, and go right on to the great-grandkids, because there's 12 of them. In a fit of jealousy, sparked by their dad's blind favoritism, seemed to run in the family, um, first a favoritism for one of his wives, and then a favoritism for one of his favorite wives' kids. I know if you're confused, it's all right. Anyway, the great-grandkids of Abraham fake their brother's death and sell him into bonded slavery, 
all because they can't stand the sight or sound of them. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, why didn't I think of that when we were growing up? <laughs> there was a sibling I couldn't stand the sight and sound of. Why didn't I think of that? Well, anyway, the result in this family was a boy abandoned into foreign slavery and a family that was racked by guilt and grief for decades, all propped up by lies and deception. Now, let me ask you, do you really think your family's too dysfunctional for God to use? Not by these standards. It's not. In fact, for the first time, you might be thinking, oh, wow, my family's looking awfully biblical. It's like parents that, parents that played favorites, check. You know, siblings that fought tooth and nail, check. Uh, mom and dad who didn't talk to each other for weeks, check. A uh, family troubled by affairs and, and, and lies and, and abuse all the way through, check. Days where you'd wished you'd been born into another family, any other family, check and double check. Sounds an awful lot like a classic biblical family to me. Now, these are the great grandkids of Abraham. And these are the 12 sons of this sneaky Jacob, the same one that, you know, connived with mom and stole from brother and all that stuff. Well, these 12 sons form the basic tribal divisions for the Israelite people as they're rescued out of Egypt and then form this new nation under Moses. These kids, they're at the head of the line. They're the heads of the family. These dirty, rotten, no good, thieving, swindling kids. When God wants to make the world right, he doesn't go looking for pristine, perfect families, which should come as a huge relief to us all, right? From start to finish, God used mixed up folks from messed up families, and through them, he does something that no one could have expected. God brings grace and healing and help and hope. He brings blessing to the world through them which leads us to a major truth in the Bible. That is that God is the hero of this story, and no one else is. God is the hero. And listen, if you keep reading through the Bible, which I know many of you have been doing, some of you, I love it, some of you for the first time are reading through the entire Bible. I just want to say, here you are in April, keep going. Don't give up. Even if you fall a little bit behind, keep going. Anyway, those of you who've been reading through the Bible uh, regularly, reading through the whole story, and maybe doing it for the first time, you keep uncovering just how crazy and dysfunctional and broken the families that God used really were. I mean, even the greatest king in Israel's history, King David, described as a man after God's own heart, held up as the standard for all the kings that were to follow. His family life was so profoundly twisted that you're reading it and you're wondering all the way through, how could God ever use people like this for his purposes? And yet, and yet God somehow does. Not by excusing their sin, not by overlooking their wrong, but by getting deep into their mess and calling people to get on side with his plan to save and redeem the world. Earlier this year, we went through the short story of Ruth. Remember that? Story for a few months we spent in that short story. And, and, and Ruth, of course, was, was King David's great-grandma. We can trace, and we did trace, uh, God's plan right through to Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin into this messy, broken, sinful family. I mean, the reality is, all that stuff we were just talking about, that's Jesus' family we're talking about. This whole rabble lot with the drunken uncles and the kinky aunts and the weird family secrets. 
Can I just make a solid point here? Good family and flawless parenting are not prerequisites for God's work in you or through you. They're just not. You may have thought that. There may have been moments in your life where you felt like somehow your upbringing disqualified you, the hurt you'd experienced just shut you off, and, or maybe the family tree or the missing limbs on the family tree. And you look at your own struggles even as a family today, and you think, God couldn't use me. It's impossible. He couldn't do anything through us. But that's just not true. Not according to the Bible, it's not. Messy doesn't disqualify you from God's purposes. Being mixed up doesn't stop God's plan. In fact... In fact, if the Bible reveals anything, it's that God specializes in using messy people, growing up in messy families to move his purposes forward. God has such a track record of, of working with messy families, you could almost say, you could almost say that mess might be the prerequisite for bless. That somehow it might be only through our mess as we experience God's healing and God's grace in the midst of our mess, it's only through that that God can fully bless others. There's something for you to consider. Because God is the hero here. God is the hero of our story. We're not the hero of our story very clearly, but we get to get in on his heroic plan for the world. God doesn't wait for perfect families who are already lined up to his kingdom purposes before he'll partner with us. You know, God calls messy, broken people from messy, broken families to follow Jesus. He calls us to align ourselves with God's purposes. And through that partnership, as we just say, God, here I am. Here's my mess. Take me. I want to follow you. God takes us and he begins this work of transformation in us. But then, marvelously, because he's the hero, through us to the world around us. What we see in the Bible is a a big story that's unfolding, this multi-generational movement from this particular family of Abraham through the expanding family of Israel. That's what the whole Old Testament's about. Right up to the ultimate family of Jesus Christ and his new family, which is called the church, the people of God. In fact, what we see from square one right there in the call of Abraham is that every call of every person and every family is actually being used to point to something greater, something bigger that God is doing, this big family that God is creating that's not united by the blood of parents, but united by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the church. God's the hero. We get in on his heroic plan. But as we see in living color, this family of God, the brothers and sisters of the Christ followers, Uh, They're a messy family too. The church, it turns out, is not perfect, not pristine, not even close. The family of God, even though it's included in God's plan, forgiven in Jesus, filled with God's Holy Spirit, is often difficult, confused, a frequently frail collection of broken people. The church is also a messy family. Now, two examples will suffice. For Exhibit A, I give you the Corinthian church. Now, The great Apostle Paul, as some of you uh, are aware, was part of starting churches around the known Roman world in those few decades after Jesus rose again. And a church had begun in the great city of Corinth, and the Apostle Paul was struggling to help these people in Corinth follow Jesus. We have a few letters of Paul to this church. There was some back and forth. Uh, And the the letters we have, uh, one and two, are found about halfway through the New Testament. 
Well, this Corinthian church, though they were filled with God's Holy Spirit, though they were chock full of spiritual gifts and planted in one of the most strategic cities in the world of its time, they were a right mess. They were spiritually confused. They were sexually confused. They were, they were theologically suspect. They were painfully elitist and prejudiced. They were compromised. They were immature. And they were exactly who God was using to reveal the good news of Jesus Christ in the city of Corinth. Did I mention that God was the hero of this story? Because he has to be. If God can use them, he really is greater than we could ever have imagined. Now, now Paul, he worked hard with this church, and, and the letters he wrote to them are evidence of that. He, wrote, he worked hard with this church to help them deal with their sin, to overcome their prejudices, to get their thinking about God straight, and to get their sexual thinking holy Christian. And he, he wept, and he, and he railed, and he denounced, and he challenged, and he called, and he comforted, and he wrote trying to, to deal with the ugly aspects of their, of their community life that was harming them as a church, hurting each other, destroying their witness. But, but make no mistake about it, this was the family of God in Corinth. And the Holy Spirit was at work in them. And it worked through them. The, the church in Corinth was a messy family through which God was bringing, bringing the blessing of the good news of Jesus Christ to all the people who were there. Well, for exhibit B, I jump forward 1,960 years to the Erickson Covenant Church. Exhibit B. I don't know if any of you have noticed, but we're a messy church family too. If you're here as a first-time guest or maybe a second-time guest, uh, Erickson Covenant today, let me just shatter any illusions you may have. We are not a perfect church. Perhaps we should say that together. We are not a perfect church. And I don't mean that in some sort of trite or falsely modest way. Oh, no, I'm really, you know. No, no, we're messy. We're filled right up to the brim with sinful, frail, confused, mean little sinners. And I'm one of them. Right here. We stumble, we fail, we fall, we react. We're filled with messy families, filled with mixed up people. But God's the hero here too. And somehow, in spite of the mess, we are experiencing God's healing. We are receiving God's grace and his forgiveness. We're discovering what God has for us. And we're, we're, even us, are being slowly transformed as a community by God's presence among us. But make no mistake, we're a church of messy people and we're a church for messy people. Let me say that again. We're a church of messy people and we're a church for messy people, which is not always comfortable for some folks. You know, one day someone in our community uh, was accosted by uh, another person downtown who said, and I quote, what in the world are they teaching down there at the Erickson Covenant Church? How would you respond? So she said, uh, why? Well, I just met someone who said they go to the Erickson Covenant Church and they don't even believe in Jesus. In fact, when I was talking to them, I think they think that Jesus and Buddha are the same, you know, same thing on the same plane. You know how she responded? It was brilliant. She said, well, that's right. We have lots of people at the Erickson Covenant Church who don't believe in Jesus. In fact, we're a church for people who don't believe in Jesus. We're a church for people who don't live like Jesus. But we're a church for people who are interested in figuring out if Jesus might be real. And if he's real, then if Jesus might be relevant, and if he's real and he's relevant, then maybe, just maybe, he might be someone 
that they would be willing to follow. Whenever I hear someone criticize one of us, you know, calling the church general down or maybe even us, you know, well, I know someone from that church and they're a real piece of work. I would say, oh, you have no idea what a piece of work we are. You have no, if you had any idea, you would definitely go somewhere else, look somewhere else. So welcome to the Erickson Covenant Church where we're filled with messy families, mixed up, mixed up sexually, confused theologically, stuck in patterns of destructive behavior and elitism. You know, if you dig hard enough, you'll find it all. Hypocrisy, defensiveness. There's even some self-righteousness here, folks. The walking wounded, we're all here. But guess who else is here? Guess who else? Yeah, Jesus is here too. And that makes all the difference. And just like in Corinth, Jesus is taking us from our mess, with our mess. He's working through our mess. He's, he's calling us to respond from our mess as we give it to him and experience his life and his transformation. And he's using us even in that to bring blessing to this valley. Not because we're great, but because he is. Not because we're good, because he is good. Mess and sin and frailty and confusion are no problem for God. The Bible's really clear on that. Instead, he invites people into his plan, and then he begins to work his change in us. In fact, he seems to delight in doing this. I mean, even in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church, he talked about how much God loves to use the weak and foolish things of this world, a.k.a. you lot. That's what he's saying. The weak and foolish things in this world to, to accomplish his plans, to bring blessing, to bring the good news of what Jesus has done. And that's what he's doing here. God is the hero. We get in on his heroic plan to make us whole and to bring his blessing to, to the world. Well, let's land this thing. Where does this leave us today? What does it mean for us? In short, messy as we are, God invites us into his story. And the question really is, are we willing to get in? I want to suggest two responses we can make to get in and let God work through our mess. The first one is to actually let God into our mess. You know, no one's family is perfect, but, but sometimes we've spent a lot of energy, maybe a lot of years, trying to like cover that over, trying to ignore it, not admit it, put up a, a false image of what our family was like or what our life is like. Be that in our biological or adoptive families, or be that even in our church family. But the first step is that we have to acknowledge that we've got mess. In fact, a fair pile of it. We've inherited some mess. We've made some mess of our own. And to admit that and let God into that. Invite him into that. Say, God, we are a mess. My family's a mess. My relationship's a mess. Something's going on in me, and I want you to step in and begin to make a difference. You know, knowing that God will use us because we're messy, in spite of our mess, doesn't mean that God actually wants to see us stay in our mess. He wants to see us healed. He wants to see us cleaned up. He wants us to see us experiencing his grace in our lives. And, and when we come to a place where we actually begin to name what's happened in our lives, whether that goes back years, even generations, whether that's something that's ongoing right now, when we actually can name the mess and pull that out into the light and start grappling with that, whether it's stuff from family of origin that has hurt us and woundedness and we, we, you know, keeps coming back up in our, in, our, in our relationships today and we want Jesus to reach back and to, to, to bring that memory to light and to, to actually bring healing there, whether it's that, we'll be paying some special attention to that in this series. 
or whether it's just acknowledging that we struggle to make sense of what's going on around us. We struggle, and, and, and we've, got, we've got things that keep hampering us. We bring that to God. We name it. It's a real mess, God, but we need you, and we invite you into it. It could be that you decide to, to, to find a trusted friend and, and say, hey, let's start writing out a bit of our mess. I mean, our story. Let, let's start writing that out and sharing that. Just between you and I, we'll keep it confidential. Let, let you, you write out some of your story. I'll write out some of mine. And we'll just start sharing that with each other. Let, let's start bringing out, out in the open with someone that you can trust, someone that will hear your story. We'll pray with you that God would get in to your mess. I think one of the things we acknowledge when we look at the story is God says, look, you bring me your mess. You stop trying to cover it up. You get real. Stop telling yourself the same false story over and over again. If you do that, just watch what I can do. In order to really get in on God's good purposes for us, we acknowledge the mess that's there, and we let him into it. Remember, we've, we've said this before. Sometimes we, um, we think or we carry this idea that we've got to get things straight first. But as the old saying goes, we don't clean up first to come to God. We come to God and let him start cleaning up. It's in that order. That's the order of grace. And so we let God into our mess. Let me pray specifically for that for you, even right now. God, I pray that we would welcome you into our mess. I pray specifically for those of us who have struggled to acknowledge the mess that's in our lives, whether it be today or in our past. God, knowing your grace, your gentleness, your commitment to us, we invite you into our mess. We invite you to bring your hope and your healing and your grace into our families, into our family of origin, into our spiritual family here at Erickson Covenant. We invite you into our mess knowing that you are good and that you are the hero of our story. Amen. The second response, of course, is that we let God work through our mess. That's the promise here. When we say yes to Jesus, when he begins to work through what's going on in our lives, what we find out is even in that very process of discovering freedom and forgiveness, even in that, even in that process of, of, of dealing with the wounds that have happened in our lives and letting God into some of our secrets and, and, and begin to experience change, even as that's happening, other people begin to experience blessing. Other people see what's going on. They, they hear you. They see the light in your eyes. They, they begin to discover like Oh, wow, something's going on in her life. Something's changing in his life. And even the way he's thinking about things change, I'm interested in knowing more about what's happening in you. Even in the process of being healed, God is able to heal others. But also we realize, and I know many of you can attest to this, that the very struggles of your own story might be the very way that God helps someone else. As you grew up perhaps in a situation of abuse, as if you, if you, as you've acknowledged that and begin to receive healing about that, and as, if, as you've worked through all the mess of that, that you've been able, uniquely positioned, you've been able to walk alongside someone else who has also been abused and been hurt. Maybe you grew up in a family that was just so fractured, fractured by alcoholism, fractured by addiction, you know, fractured by, by uh, unfaithfulness, whatever. And as you've worked through that mess, and as you've let God into that, and experience this healing, you, you've been uniquely positioned to walk alongside others and share hope and healing with them in the midst of their brokenness. The reality is God works through our mess. 
And though we don't look back at those things and think they were good, what we can see is that God's commitment is to take even our mess and our sin and our brokenness and to use them for good for others. God takes our mess and uses it to bless others. The question is, how has God worked through your own story to bring hope and healing to others? Or perhaps the question is, how will God work through your story? Let me pray for that as well. God, I pray specifically today that you would show us how, even though there's been difficulties and struggle, and even though there was awful brokenness in in our families, or or there's been patterns that have, have come up again, Lord Jesus, that as we let you into our mess, that you will use us. You have used us, and you will use us to share with others, to help others discover hope and freedom and forgiveness in you. I pray today that you would inspire each one of us with the ways that you are able to use us through our mess to bless others. You're the hero of our story, Lord. And this just demonstrates that. God, I, I thank you and praise you for your work in us and through us. Amen. Well, this, I believe, will make a huge difference. When God gets into our messy family, whether it be biological or adoptive or spiritual, he takes us up into his story. And he uses us to bless other messy folks too. And that, my friends, is what we're all about. God's the hero of our story. God's the hero of our family. God's the hero of our church. Our hope is that God will be the hero for everyone else. I hope that you'll grab a hold of this series as we move forward through the month of May and June. As I said at the beginning, we're going to be taking out the family and looking at it from a variety of angles. I believe strongly that God is going to speak through this series to bring healing and hope to you and as a result bring blessing to others. So I challenge you to come back, be part of the series, invite a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, even a family member to be part of this so together we can discover what it means to have God as the hero of our story. Will you rise? I'll pray for us as we leave today. Father, I ask now that you would send us as a people who, though we are messy, are recipients of your grace and your blessing. May we leave today aware more than ever that you are among us, that you are with us, that you have a plan for us and the work you want to do through us. And so would we go with your confidence today, blessing you, thanking you, ready for all that you want to do in us and through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here today. I hope you can join us for coffee time and we get to know each other a little more.